When we last left off, we had just learned about Karen Aparo's version of the days leading up to her mother's gruesome death. In today's episode, we will hear Dennis Coleman's version of the story, as well as additional investigation details and the inevitable trials that followed. I'm Colby. I'm joined by my two best friends, Laura and Marina, and this is Grim. glad we decided to record on two separate days for this because I feel like years have passed since we <laughs> last heard it. So for mm-hmm. the the time in between for our gremlins, it feels like we can represent that here. Yes. So. I still feel the hatred in my heart mm-hmm. towards Colby mm-hmm. of what she did to us yesterday mm-hmm. because yeah. she's like, all right, I'm going to tell you about these two stories. And then yeah. she told us one and was like, see you later. I was watching the pages and I was like, wow, Dennis's side is really short. <laughs> I, I had to keep you guys coming back for more. I yeah. can't give you both oh, we're stories here. together. Give me, give me more. Go, right? Brittany. Yeah, yeah you got you. it. You okay. got it. Okay. Marina did not Name think that so. tune. No. because <laughs> I can't sing. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem. So if, if you guys haven't listened to episode 25 yet, I would highly suggest that you mm-hmm. do that before continuing on with this episode. Although, if you listen to this first, would love to hear your impression yeah, of actually. what you think happened. No, just kidding. It's listen not fully like a story in reverse. So yeah. everybody seems like a good person at the end. I think everybody's still going to seem like an equally horrible person at the end of the case. So in part one, we focused a lot on the discovery of Joyce's body and car, as well as the initial couple days of the investigation. We talked at length about Joyce, Karen, and Dennis the eccentric tales that Joyce would weave, the extensive history of abuse Karen suffered at her mother's hands, and Dennis's romance, obsession, perhaps, with Karen. Mm-hmm. We also covered Karen's version of the events leading up to her mother's death. Yeah, so, hers, hers were made up. Hers were definitely mm-hmm. made up. Yeah. I'm going to tell you the real story because I believe Dennis. Okay. All right. So on Tuesday, July 28th, Dennis was driving Karen around when Karen asked him a question. She asked him what he would do if she told him that she hadn't slept with Alex just once, but over 20 times. Dennis told her that if that were true, he would drive his car right off a cliff and kill them both. Oh, my oh, gosh. Jesus. So Karen very quickly says, no, 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 that, that's not the case. I was just curious about how you were going to react. And I mean, I, I get it, right? Karen wants to be a psychologist now, so she's just probing the human brain. Uh-huh. Yeah, she, some some probing that's happened. Happening, that's yeah. for sure. It's like one of those situations where, like, what would you do? J.K. Just kidding. It was J.K. It was a very real life example, but it definitely wasn't real. Okay. <laughs> All right. So later that same night, Dennis returned to the condo and stood outside Karen's window, and he just apologized profusely for his outburst earlier, and he told her that. He just could not bear to think of his life without her or even worse, her with somebody else. So he was just kind of saying, like, mm-hmm. I didn't mean to scare you. Like, I'm so sorry I said that and I did that. But he was like, I, I can't live without you. Did he have a boombox? <laughs> I wish he had a boombox. Rocks that he was throwing <laughs> at the window. He, I don't think he threw rocks, but he should. Mm-hmm. He should have. Dennis claims that while he was at Karen's house, Karen began incessantly pressuring him to kill Joyce. She was crying and saying she just couldn't take it anymore. Dennis was crying because he was upset at what happened earlier in the day in the car, what was happening between Karen and Alex, and what she wanted him to do. So we have a lot of emotions at play right now. Yes. Yeah. Dennis claims that it was on this night that Karen came up with a plan. She wanted Dennis to cut the brakes in her mother's car. 
Jeez. She said her mom was always driving too fast and it would just be so perfect. She would go to break and get into an accident at a high speed and there's no way she'd ever survive. Karen pleaded with Dennis to do this for her while Dennis pleaded with her that there had to be some other way. Mm -hmm. But Karen was adamant that in order for them to be together, for them to have the future they dreamed of, Joyce had to go. After some back and forth, Dennis finally agreed. Oh, Dennis. He went to an auto shop and purchased some wire cutters. He came back to the condo complex and sat in his car and just stared at Joyce's. He couldn't do it. He went back to Karen's window and tried to let her know that he couldn't follow through with his plan that night, but Karen was already fast asleep. <laughs> Sleeping like a baby. Which, like, what does that say about you? Yeah, that, like, exactly. you just commissioned your boyfriend to go kill your mom and you're sleeping like a baby. Mm hmm. Anyway. I know Joy sucks, but Karen sucks. Karen kind of sucks, mm -hmm. too. Yeah, everyone her name sucks. is Karen. Uh, but mm. with an I. True, true. On Wednesday, July 29th, the only communication Dennis and Karen had was Karen asking him what happened to their plan the night before. He explained to her that he tried to tell her he just couldn't do it, but he couldn't get her attention. So it's fine. They move on. The next day, on July 30th, Dennis stopped by Karen's window around 9 p.m. while Karen was packing for her upcoming trip to Binghamton, which I enjoy saying that word, Binghamton. Mm. She again started to pressure Dennis to kill her mother. She kept saying it had to be tonight. She didn't want to go to Binghamton. Her mother was making her go. Both Dennis and Karen were again crying during this exchange, and to make things even more awkward, he said Joyce kept interrupting them while they were talking, asking Karen to go do, like, chores around oh the house. So she's like, oh, am I interrupting anything, honey? Yeah. No, just are conspiring to murder you, Mom. Like, I'm yeah. good. <laughs> Seriously. Mom, get the meatloaf. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so sometime prior to this particular night, one of them had had the idea to kill Joyce using a poisonous gas. A mixture of ammonia and bleach. Dennis didn't really remember who initially brought the idea up, only that Karen had to tell him what to do, like how to mix the concoction. So the new plan was that before Karen went to bed, she was going to leave the door to the condo unlocked. I don't know why she had to do this. Dennis has a key, but whatever. Dennis would come over. He would soak a rag in the mixture and hold it over Joyce's mouth and nose until she was dead. If it didn't work, they prepared a plan B. Dennis would just strangle Joyce if the concoction wasn't strong enough. So Karen promised she would clean up the scene the next morning, removing all traces of Dennis ever being there that night. She claimed she would get rid of any fingerprints, clean the sheets, vacuum, dust, etc. Karen also told Dennis that he would need to dump Joyce's body somewhere. It was important her body be found so that Karen could collect her mother's life insurance money. Again with the insurance. Yeah. My goodness, people. Also, Dennis didn't have the balls to cut the brakes and he's going right. to strangle yeah, yeah. her if yeah. she doesn't yeah. suffocate from the rag. That doesn't seem like a well-thought-out plan. It also, does not. bleach and ammonia do not chloroform make. So, <laughs> to use Marina's phrasing. Yes. <laughs> Does it make a poisonous gas? It does. It, it, that oh, is an okay. actual real thing. That, so please don't clean your bathroom with things. <laughs> yes. No, it, it's actually a thing that people are like, oh my God, if you do all these things, it's great. It'll really clean your bathroom. Yeah. And yeah. you'll never use it again because you've died. Guys, um, listen, learn, and stay yeah, alive. Yeah. Just don't clean your bathroom. Well, because it's not just, you're not just taking like a gallon of bleach and a gallon, gallon of ammonia. It's if you use chemicals that or uh, sprays or whatever that have both of them oh, in there, it can okay. create, it's actually very bad for you. So please don't do that. All right, so let, let's go back to why we need Joyce's body to mm -hmm. be found. So yes. what Karen says to Dennis is the money is important because they need it to start their new life together. Naturally. Um, and just as a reminder, and I'm not, I don't know if it's a reminder, I'm not sure if I told you guys in part one, but her <laughs> life insurance policy was for around $300,000, and this is in 1987. Okay. So yeah. it's, a, it's a good, a good amount. chunk of money. Yeah. So Karen instructed Dennis to take the rings her mother wore as well because they were valuable and she wanted them for herself. 
They ended their conversation with Karen content the plan would be put in motion, but Dennis was unsure. He did not show up that night. (laughs) Remember the call that Karen made to Dennis on Friday night, the one from the party she went to with her mom? Mm -hmm. Dennis confirmed she did call him, but not just to talk about the cats. The first order of business was to talk about why Joyce was still among the living. (laughs) She was supposed to be dead. Karen couldn't understand why, yet again, Dennis had not followed through with their plan. Did he not love her anymore? Why couldn't he show up and do what she needed him to do? And Dennis is like, do it yourself, bitch. Yes. He says Karen got weird after the discussion, and then she did actually ask him to feed the cats. So that was not a lie. (laughs) He very (laughs) readily agreed to go feed the cats. Of course he did. The last thing that she told him was that she was going to be back home on Tuesday morning. On Saturday, August 1st and Monday, August 3rd, Dennis used his key to the Apero condo to go feed the cats. While he was there, he walked into Karen's room. He grimaced when he saw a picture of Karen and Alex on Karen's dresser. He didn't like it one bit. Mm. I don't Don't blame blame him. him. Yeah. He also saw Karen's diaries laying in plain sight. He picked one up and he seriously considered reading it, but he ultimately decided not to. After all, it contained Karen's private thoughts. What a respectful gentleman. I would definitely have read them. Mm -hmm. He would never invade her privacy like that. It just wouldn't be right. So here's a grim fact for you. We're starting off early with it. Had Dennis actually read that journal, and we'll talk a little bit more about what was in it later, he would have known what Karen was writing about him, how he was weak and obsessive, (sighs) all of the other derogatory things she said about him, blah, blah, blah. But one thing would have been glaringly absent from the most recent journal. There was nothing negative written in there about Joyce. In fact, there was barely anything about Joyce in there at all. Huh. And it's weird because in the past when things were really bad, she would use her journal to vent all of her thoughts and frustrations, but Mm -hmm. there was none of that present now. Hmm. So the question of whether or not Dennis actually read her journal is hotly debated. Some people say there's no way he could have read it. If he had, he would have known Karen was playing him. And even if he did read it, why would it have been incentive to kill Joyce? There was nothing in there about Karen fighting with her, being afraid of her, being abused by her, nothing pointing to Joyce being the one forcing the affair with Alex. Hmm. It actually would have been very clear that Karen instigated all of this. Yes. Yeah. If anything, what he read would have been a reason to murder Alex or Karen herself. Dennis would never hurt Karen and he didn't kill Alex. So I feel like it's safe to say that it's very, very likely he's telling the truth and did not read the diary at that time. I would agree. Joyce was still a piece of shit, though, right? She was. Yes. Okay. Yeah, it was. Um, I think she just stopped writing about her being a piece of shit. Yes. Probably because she was committed to killing her. So she was like, that, I don't need to vent my frustrations anymore. Also, that looks great for motive. Right. So where I was actually going to go next was why would Karen leave her mother out of the journal like this? And, mm-hmm. you know, I think I have a theory. Maybe since Joyce had a history of going through Karen's things and had oh. no problem reading her thoughts, unlike Dennis, she left out some of it in case her mother came snooping again. Mm hmm. The journal primarily focused on the affair with Alex, which was something her mother approved of, if not also encouraged. Mm -hmm. Karen also knew Dennis well enough to know he would never violate her privacy, so she had trained him very well, so I don't think she ever would have had a concern about Dennis opening it. Before leaving the condo that evening, Dennis wrote Karen a note and stuck it in between the sheets of her bed. The first page of the note was short and simple. It said, I will do the deed. He, of course, was referring to killing Joyce. He had been thinking about it since Karen left, and he was finally ready to commit to the plan. Dennis said it was surreal, fantasy land. I was in a nightmare and there's nothing I could do about it. It's happening and I'm not in control of it. So he really does feel like he's spiraling out and Mm -hmm. like it's not a conscious choice he's making to do this. Kind of is, though. It kind of is. 
But the only option he had, he thought, was to either kill himself or to kill Joyce because he couldn't have Karen. So either he would be dead without Karen and Joyce would be alive or Joyce would be dead and Dennis would have Karen. I mean, between those two choices, I too would choose killing Joyce. I believe I would choose that as Mm -hmm. well. Do you mean Alex would have Karen? No, this is Dennis thinking this through. So still Dennis thinks he would have Karen. Oh, okay. Dennis just thinks that like the whole thing with Alex is like a little bit of a fling and she just kind of had to do it to get it out of her system. Like sow her wild oats. Okay. He's not happy with it, but. Mm -hmm. So Dennis began to outline a plan. Like he literally made a schedule on a piece of paper. So about 1.30 a.m. on Wednesday, August 5th, he would enter the Aparo condo and with Karen's help, he'd kill Joyce. He guesstimated that it would take him about 10 minutes to kill her. No idea how he got that number. (laughs) Then he said that he and Karen would carry Joyce's body to her car and load her into the back seat. Karen would return to the condo to begin her cleanup while Dennis drove somewhere to dispose of the body. There were some holes in the plan, like he needed to find a second driver since his intention was to ditch Joyce's car, so he needed a way to get back home. He felt like there were neighborhoods in the Bronx or Harlem that would be perfect for ditching the car, far enough away that if the police found her, it would take a while for them to ID her. If anyone other than the police found her, he was confident that the people in this area were not going to call the cops. They'd be more likely to strip the car for parts. (laughs) According to Dennis's timetable, the trip to New York, cleaning the car, ditching the body, would take about five hours total, getting him back to Glastonbury just in time to make his shift at the country club at 7 a.m. Priorities. Yes, priorities. Well, I think think it's like his alibi as well, Mm. like part Mm. of it. We'll see. Except that police could also make those same calculations and be they like could. that is exactly the time it takes to go kill someone so it probably <laughs> you had you. plenty of yeah. time oh you only budgeted 10 minutes though yeah. we know it takes longer yeah couldn't be so dennis tried to ask his friend chris wheatley to be the second driver and yesterday i had read um a note or i had paraphrased a note that karen left in kira's yearbook this is the chris of chris and kira that is the couple oh, that okay. karen like idolizes yep So Dennis says that Chris owed him from all of the times that he'd helped him out with money in the past year. From what I gather, Chris had a gambling problem. I don't know if I'd go as far as to call him an addict, but he had gotten himself into trouble a couple of times, and Dennis always spotted him the money without question. Since that was not enough of a motivator for Chris, Dennis said he could have $1,000 from the life insurance payout, but he was going to have to wait for it. He also told Chris he could have whatever cash Joyce had on her. Chris didn't agree, but he also didn't say no. He told Dennis he needed to think about it. Now, did Dennis say you're transporting this car because I am killing someone and need to dump their car? Or was it just, hey, I need you to pick me up from this area? He knows what Dennis is doing. Yeah, I would assume if if he's telling him that he's going to get a piece of the life insurance money. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. Good point. Good point. Yep. So on Tuesday, August 4th, Dennis arrived home from work around 3.30 in the afternoon to learn that Karen was still delayed in staying in row eight in yet another night. So now their stories are kind of converging again. He was disappointed, to say the least. Karen also confirmed that Joyce had to go that same day, right? Every day she's reinforcing. It's almost like ritualistic, the way that she's doing it, like a chant. Um, So she said, you know what? We can't do it tonight because I'm not going to be home because I have to stay in row eight in another night. We got to do it tomorrow now. So at 6.06, Karen called Dennis again. She said, you know, she'd been thinking about everything and she just couldn't be in the house when it happened. So Dennis would have to kill Joyce tonight, not tomorrow, as planned. She told him not to worry about anything, though. She was still planning on coming back home first thing in the morning, clean everything up, and then she was going to wait 24 to 36 hours to report her mother missing. Karen also stressed the importance of Dennis bringing a change of clothes for Joyce. 
It was important that she not be found in her nightgown because then people would know she was killed at home and dumped somewhere. If she was found in her normal clothes, people may assume she never made it home from work on Tuesday night. Hmm. So now that the plan is on, Dennis has to win over his second driver. He went to Kira's house and asked Chris to go for a drive with him so the two could chat. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall for yeah, that chat. Really. Yeah. I don't know how it goes. <laughs> hey, you want to help me out with a favor? <laughs> Chris said he still wasn't sure and he needed a little bit more time to think about it. So at 7.30, Dennis called Karen because he wanted to let her know, like, hey, I am trying to make this happen tonight, but Chris isn't into it yet. And Karen was adamant, like, it is vital this plan be carried out tonight. She has to go tonight. So again, he found Chris at Kira's house, and the two took another ride with Dennis trying to convince Chris to help him. And this time, Chris agreed. Dennis called Karen at 9.03 to let her know they were good to go. He only needed to know when Joyce would be home. And Karen shared the good news that she was home already and probably asleep. So back at Kira's house, Dennis, Chris, and another friend named Frank hung out and they drank a bunch of beers. They had a mini horror movie marathon capped off by watching Friday the 13th. At 11.30, Frank and Kira left the house to go buy a Garfield mug. I have no idea the significance of this, but it was so weird that I had to include it in here. They were like, do you know what I really need right now before we commit a killer crime? I hate Mondays. <laughs> Doesn't he like spaghetti too? Lasagna. He does. Yeah. Lasagna. Lasagna. He loves lasagna. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Loves lasagna, hates Mondays. <laughs> Check. So now uh, Chris and Dennis are left alone to discuss their plans. So they run through the details of the night. Chris agreed to pick Dennis up at his parents' house at 1 a.m., and Dennis leaves to go pick up some essentials at a nearby Wawa, which, can we just talk about for a second how we don't have Wawas in Connecticut today, but we had them in the 80s? Like, I gotta go to Pennsylvania for this Mm -hmm. shit. Mm. Or New Jersey, right? Are they in New Jersey? I think so as well. Florida, too, right? Yeah. Not Not going there. That's a bit of a drive to Florida. (laughs) (laughs) Marina will pull up the map quest. Don't worry. Thanks. I'll get there in approximately 42 years. <laughs> it's the instructions from 1997. <laughs> so you might be wondering, what did Dennis buy in his little pit stop at the Wawa? Well, I know. He bought legs pantyhose. Remember, like, the eggs uh-huh. pantyhose? Oh. Yep. A black wig, work gloves, a box of plastic garbage bags, and a pack of Marlboros. Why if, do they sell black wigs at Wawa? I don't know. But you know what? Dennis didn't smoke. He started smoking that night. Yeah. So, I, also, if if I were creating a movie and I needed someone to go into a convenience store and appear as though they were going to commit a murder, <laughs> those are the items I would have them purchase. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that assessment. The only thing he did not purchase was a weapon, but it's because he was using the pantyhose as a weapon. Yeah, yeah. exactly. See, I would have thought that he was putting the pantyhose over his face That's with what the I black thought wig. as right. well. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when Dennis got home, he did do one very smart thing. He burned the paper that he had outlined his plan on. I was a little worried about him having this all documented, but I get it. I need to work things out on paper, too, usually. Except that I've watched way too many shows where they, like, get impressions of the pad of paper and all that. That's the first thing I thought of. They pull out an unburned piece of paper from the It's from this notebook. Yes. After he burned the paper, he changed into his black pants, black shirt, black socks, and shoes. He went all black everything. He also grabbed a ski mask, a hat, a pair of goggles, and plastic bags. He grabbed a duffel bag with a change of clothes in it because he didn't want to wear the same clothes on the ride home that he killed Joyce in, which, good job. So a little after 1 a.m., Chris pulled up to Dennis's house. He was right on time. But to Dennis's dismay, Kira was in the car with Chris. Mm. Chris had told Kira what was happening, and for some reason, she insisted on going with them. I'm pretty sure Kira is the definition of a ride-or-die girl at this point. (laughs) Well, she got her Garfield mug already. She's ready to go. Yep, so she (laughs) did her thing for the night, and now they're going to do what her boyfriend wants to do, right? It's fair. 
So Chris drove Dennis to the block over from the condo and he parked. The plan was that Dennis was going to be inside the condo for about 20 minutes in total, and Chris was supposed to wait that amount of time before moving the car closer to the condo. At 1.20, Dennis got out of the car and began to head towards the Aparo house. He used his key to gain entry. He said, you know, he had a little bit of trouble with it, and he was terrified that it was so loud that it woke Joyce up. It didn't. He entered the pitch black condo and put down the box of trash bags. He took off the ski mask. It was so hot that he was dripping sweat beneath it, and he was sweating so much that he could not see. (laughs) Okay, also leaving all the DNA. Yeah, all the DNA. I will say, not in his defense, but I understand why he was sweating, because it was early August. I'm assuming Mm -hmm. this condo did not have air conditioning, or at least not great air conditioning. Mm -hmm. So Dennis started moving towards Joyce's bedroom, and he paused when he saw her laying on her back. For some reason, Dennis feels like this is not how people sleep. Nobody sleeps on their back, so he's very concerned that she's awake. (laughs) What? Yeah, I don't know. Yep, Plenty of people sleep on their back. Sometimes I do. I usually sleep on my side, but sometimes. Yeah. So, (laughs) I'm sorry. It's okay. Perplexing. Yes, thank you. That's the most confusing piece about this case. I was following. I was like, yeah, 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 I'm sweaty too. Yeah, okay. All right. (laughs) So, Joyce was asleep. She did just sleep on her back. Weird people sleeping on their back. Um, So once he was confident she was still sleeping, he began to move toward her. He said that in this moment, he felt like he was having an out-of-body experience. It was surreal, and a psychologist later would say that even if a cop had been there and ordered Dennis to stop, he wouldn't have been able to. The cop would have had to have shot him to stop him. I wonder, is there, are you going to get into, is there a a name for that phenomenon? I don't know if there's a name for the phenomenon, but I will diagnose Dennis later. Well, I mean, I won't. I will share his diagnosis. (laughs) They basically describe Dennis's state of mind as being trance-like and singularly focused on Mm. the mission to carry out to appease the love Mm. of his life. Wow. But as he got closer, Joyce did in fact wake up. Uh Uh-oh. She sat straight up in bed, saw him, and began to beg for her life. Dennis remembers her saying, please don't hurt me. I have no money. Please don't hurt me. Because she didn't address him by name, though, he doesn't think that she knew it was him. I was just going to say that because, first of all, if she knew it was him, why would she assume that he was going to hurt right. her? And then second, why would she say, I don't have money? Why would he want that? So I, right. I would agree with that assessment. You know, it wouldn't have mattered, though, even if she did, because it was too late. There mm-hmm. was no turning back now. Mm. So Dennis pounced on her. He wrapped the pantyhose around her neck, twisting tighter and tighter. He used his knee on the bed to brace himself. Joyce was gasping for air, and Dennis kept telling her to shh. He grabbed a pillow and held it over her face. He didn't want her making enough noise to draw attention to what was going on. He said he kept losing and retightening his grip. His finger was developing a blister from all the pressure. How uncomfortable. He thought about stopping, but he pressed on. She struggled immensely. Joyce Aparo's death was not a quick or pleasant one. Finally, Dennis looked down, and Joyce was dead. He looked at the clock. It was 1.56. It had taken him over 25 minutes to kill Joyce. Uh-oh. His whole timeline's off his now. His whole timeline is effed. He's it gonna takes be, a long time to strangle it someone. It does. Yeah. Not, he's going to be late for work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll see if he's going to be late for work. Mm-hmm. Now he's in a hurry. He drags her body into the living room, and he attempts to bag it in the trash bags, but she went through them. He grabbed two afghans from the couch and wrapped Joyce in them. Fun fact, Joyce had made those afghans, so that didn't work out so well for her. He went to the sliding door to check to make sure Chris was still waiting there for him despite being behind on the plan. But he didn't see Chris. Instead, he saw a police car slowly cruising by. A moment later, another. Uh Then the first cruiser circled back around and passed by again. 
Dennis was in a panic. He had no way of knowing that the cops weren't there because they were privy to his plan. They were actually out looking for a cat burglar that had been hitting homes in the neighborhood lately. How unfortunate for him. (laughs) Yeah. He decides he's going to leave Joyce's body on the floor of the condo and he's going to jump in her car and go out and look for Chris because maybe the cops scared Chris off. Mm. So Dennis spent maybe 15, 20 minutes looking for Chris to no avail. He returned to the condo and called Kira to see if Chris was there. And she told him that he wasn't, but they had run into a bit of a complication after Dennis got out of the car. One of the cops that was patrolling the neighborhood had seen Chris throw trash out of his window and gave him a ticket for littering. (laughs) After he wrote him up, the cop told Chris to get out of there. So Chris started the car and drove around, but the cop followed him. So he kind of just said, you know what, I'm going to get out of here. And he brought Kira home, and then he went back to his house. Dennis told Kira to have Chris call him immediately at the condo. He was almost screaming at her at this point, so you could tell um, he's starting to spiral a Mm -hmm. little bit. So while he sat and waited, he saw more police activity in the neighborhood, all the while becoming more and more anxious. After what seemed like an eternity, but was actually only five to ten minutes, Mm -hmm. Chris called and Dennis answered on the first ring. Chris could tell that Dennis was spiraling, so Chris took control. He instructed Dennis to get Joyce's body into the car and meet him at a rest stop in East Hartford so they could come up with a new plan to dump the car and body since it was way too late to drive to New York now. What kind of a person is Chris? Because from the very start, this is why I asked if he knew why he was driving him, because your first response should probably be, "Um, let me think about it. Hi, 911. I'd like to report an attempted murder. Like, you know, and, and now he's a part of it. But 100K, that's sweet money. No, no, Only he was going to get $1,000. 1000 not 100000 And oh, in the future. Right. I thought it was 100000 and I was thinking, why would they offer up a third, third of yep. the mm-hmm. life insurance Mm-mm. policy? A thousand bucks? Oh my bucks. gosh, mm-hmm. I would sell him down the river in an instant. Right? Exactly. Sorry, guys, a thousand is not enough to buy me to be an accomplice to whatever Mm-mm. murder you want to commit. We're going to need like a hundred thousand. I mean, the legal fees alone. Right, know? yes. Yeah. I don't even think a hundred thousand's worth it, to be honest with you. What's no. your number? Oh, I just silenced both of you. <laughs> um, I, uh, I have a lot of student loan debt still, so mm. if somebody were to say, just make that go away for me, I would do some things for them. Mm-hmm. I plead the fifth. <laughs> Spoken so, like a lawyer. Dennis covered the back seat of Joyce's car with plastic trash bags and went to run back into the house to grab her body. As he was walking back, another police car was in the area. Dennis dropped to the ground and laid as flat as he possibly could and stayed as still as he possibly could. He was sure that the cops would have been able to see him, but somehow they didn't. They just continued driving by. Oh, man. He ran back inside the condo and heard Joyce's body was actually making gurgling noises. I think this was from, like, the last bits of air escaping her lungs, but he thought it meant maybe she wasn't dead. So he grabbed some paper towels and stuffed them in her mouth to muffle the sound. Yeah. He he then took Joyce outside into the car and took off for the new rendezvous point that he and Chris had agreed upon. Took him about 10 to 15 minutes to get there. And when he got there, he noticed, again, Kira was with Chris, but Dennis didn't even care at this point in time. Chris walked over to Dennis's car, and the two started to talk through a revised plan. Dennis was still very clearly panicked, and he said at this point he just wanted to get rid of everything. He didn't care if the body was going to be discovered or not. But, you know, Chris kept a calm, cool, and collected head, and he suggested, let's drive up 91 North, and we'll find a place to dump her along the Connecticut River. Chris led, and Dennis followed. While Dennis was in the car alone with his thoughts, Joyce's body continued to make noises, so Dennis was super paranoid that she was still alive, and ironically that she was going to strangle him. 
He was, <laughs> I, yeah. I don't like this. He was so on edge that he tried to turn the radio up to drown out his thoughts and the sounds that Joyce was making in the back seat, but it did not help him. Is that the equivalent of turning the radio down so you could see the numbers on the houses better? Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> About an hour and a half into the drive, he just couldn't take it anymore. He pulled over and he flashed his lights at Chris so he would stop as well, because remember, Chris is the lead car. Dennis was starting to get very worried about the time. He needed to make it back for his shift at 7 a.m. My best guess is that it is somewhere around 3.30 to 4 a.m. at this time, just based on adding up Mm -hmm. all the times that stuff took. Chris agreed to get off the highway at the next exit and find a place to put the body. But they were having a little bit of trouble finding the river, so they just kind of decided they were going to bail on that plan and ditch her down an embankment. Dennis had Chris and Kira drive around for about 10 minutes while Dennis disposed of Joyce's body. He dragged her down the embankment, covered her with some leaves and brush, and walked away. Chris and Kira were waiting for him this time, like they actually said they would, (laughs) and they told him that they had found the perfect spot to hide the car. There was a slope at the end of a dead-end dirt road. It was perfect. Dennis drove the car down the hill and into the small stream. Chris followed him down to help clean out the car and pack everything into a giant trash bag. Back in Chris's car, Dennis changed into his clothes he had brought, and he started to look through Joyce's purse. She had $75 in cash and several credit cards. He gave it all to Chris as his down payment, (laughs) and the group began to head back towards Glastonbury. Out of nowhere, Dennis started crying while he was sitting in the back seat. Kira says that Dennis told them what he had done, and he kept saying, Karen made me do it. I had to do it. I didn't want to do it. I had to do it. And after a while, he had no tears left to cry, and exhausted, he drifted off to sleep. Mm -hmm. They got back to Glastonbury at 6 a.m. Chris brought Kira home first and then Dennis. Dennis flew up the stairs in his house, threw the trash bag and Joyce's purse in the closet, brushed his teeth, washed his face, jumped in his car, and went to work, arriving right on time at 7 a.m. From our last episode, we already know that Joyce's car and body would both be found on Wednesday, August 5th. We also know that the police brought Dennis and Karen in for some initial questioning based on their suspicious behavior, so I'm not going to spend any more time on the 5th. On Thursday, August 6th, the Glastonbury Police Department returned to the Apero condo for another search. This time, the disheveled bed was of much more interest to them. They theorized that perhaps the killer must have shoved the bed away from the wall during a struggle and maybe used the pillows to smother and stifle the victim's cries. The fact that the $10 and the gas cards were on the coffee table kind of ruled out robbery as a motive. They reconsidered the garbage bags. Had the killer tried to use them to move Joyce's body? Yup, and it didn't work. (laughs) They also found a roll of paper towels under the sink that were a match for the one found in Joyce's mouth. Mm. I was wondering how you could easily match a paper towel, but they were yellow and like a specific brand of paper towel, so it it was like visually he could Mm. tell it was the same. They were like, I could tell that this is the bounty, the quilted (laughs) picker upper. (laughs) Yes. He was very keen on his paper towels. (laughs) They did a quick sweep of Karen's room. Again, she's your typical teenager. She's got a lot of shit. It would take forever to Mm -hmm. go through everything. They found a stack of photos, some of just Karen, some of Karen and Alex, some of Alex with his violin. There was a bookcase filled with books, sheets of music and violin scores. She had dolls, stuffed animals, and some more photographs. One of note was that of Archbishop John Whelan. It was signed and framed. Hmm. In the drawer of her nightstand next to her bed, they found a couple journals. Detective Revoir skimmed through them quickly, and he didn't really find anything of note. Karen had a really busy Thursday morning herself, though, guys. She woke up, and she called her best friend, Shannon Dubois. I will say I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing Shannon's last name correctly. It's D-U-B-O-I-S. I went to school with a girl whose last name was this, and she pronounced it was Dubois, mm-hmm. but it also may be Dubois. So I'm sorry, Shannon, if I'm mispronouncing your name. 
Shannon was tall, pretty, she had short blonde hair, and she looked like the typical all-American girl next door. Just so you guys have a little visual mm-hmm. to go. Okay. Shannon remembers that Karen sounded really nervous when she first answered the phone. Karen told her that her mother had been murdered. She said she needed her best friend and asked her to come over to Dennis's house right away. Shannon happened to be dating Dennis's younger brother, Matt, so Matt went over to pick up Shannon so she could comfort her friend. Next, Karen called Archbishop Whalen at his private residence. As a reminder, she had known and been extremely close to him her whole life. Mm-hmm. She told him about her mother's death and requested that he conduct the funeral services. It was a strange request for a divorced woman who really went, who rarely went to church. I would go as far as to say Joyce hated church. She was usually at odds with the church, yeah. and she often discouraged Karen from practicing her faith. Presiding over a funeral also was not really something the archbishop did. The last time he had was for Connecticut's former governor, Ella Grasso, in 1981. Nevertheless, he agreed. He would do whatever he could to help Karen in this moment. There's a very good reason why Karen wanted him close to her for this. Uh, Joyce had actually told Karen that the archbishop was her real biological father. Oh. This was a charade that Joyce kept up for the duration of Karen's life, and Karen kept their secret, referring to him instead as Uncle John. Oh, yeah, because Joyce was a pathological liar. Uh huh. So I will oh dispel God. the myth very quickly. A year after all of these events, Karen asked him if it was true, and he said no, he wasn't her father. Wow. When Shannon arrived, the girls stood outside and they talked. Shannon asked Karen where Alex had been when the murder occurred. Karen said, nope, he was with me in Rowayton. Shannon then asked, well, who would do such a thing, while Karen silently stared at the ground. Shannon said that Karen looked over at the Coleman house, and then she asked her, Karen, do you know who did it? And Karen told her Dennis did. According to Shannon, Karen told her that Dennis had strangled her mother with a pair of pantyhose, which we know is accurate. Mm -hmm. Shannon couldn't believe this, though. She didn't want to believe it, but Karen told her she had proof. She took Shannon to Dennis's room, opened the closet, and pulled out a light-colored duffel bag. Shannon looked inside the bag and found a bunch of black-colored clothing and a bright orange leather purse that Shannon recognized as Joyce's. Michael Zaccaro and the other Athena business partners also arrived to check on Karen. They got to the house around 11.30. One of them, Anne-Marie Murray, took a 30-minute walk with Karen, where Karen expressed a lot of concern for her future, specifically where she would live. Anne-Marie is a saint, and she actually offered that her and her husband would take Karen in, but Karen would not accept. Karen wasn't worried about money, though, because she shared that her mom had a $300,000 life insurance policy, Mm. which is a weird thing to bring up Uh in this moment. Mm -hmm. They talked about the funeral, the estate, and what to do with Karen. It was a lot for Karen, and for the first time ever, she broke down. She was extremely pale and began crying, and it really looked like she was in shock. So as all of this is going on, they're trying to figure out where she should go. And Shannon's family steps up and says, you know what? Come stay with us. Mm-hmm. At least she's human. Yes. I feel like mm. even if you are a sociopath and you plot your mother's murder, I feel like you should still feel something feel when something. it actually yeah. happens. Yeah. Even just a twinge a little, of yeah. regret. A twinge. Yeah. Dennis got home from work around 3 o'clock and found that Shannon was still at his house. Karen wasn't there. I'm not exactly sure where Karen went, but she was not home. Um, Dennis asked Shannon if she knew what happened, and she said she did, and she confronted him on it. He then confirmed the story that Karen had told her earlier that day. Shannon went home before Karen returned to the Coleman's, but the two talked later, and Shannon told her Dennis had confessed to her. Oddly, the girls kind of had an unspoken agreement that neither of them was going to take this information to the police. They had a very long discussion about, like, loyalty. On Saturday, August 8th, Karen, Jeff Sands, and Michael Zaccaro went and made funeral arrangements. 
It was at this moment that Michael noticed that something was off about Karen's behavior. She had a complete lack of emotion while picking out a casket for her mother. He said she was so cold that it was almost unbelievable. She didn't look at the caskets at all. All she looked at was the price tag, and that's how she made her decision. She bought the cheapest one available. Oh. The Athena partners tried to reach out to family members in the area. Um, they really didn't know what family Joyce had in the area other than Karen because they wanted to include them in the services and let them yeah. know. They found out that Joyce's mother and sister, they lived nearby, surprisingly. Her mom and her sister were in South Windsor, and her brother was in White Plains, New York. So they really weren't that far yeah. away. Karen, though, got very upset, and she wanted no mention of any of them in the obituary. She was hysterical. Michael said he told the funeral director to exclude them just to calm her down, but he really didn't feel good about it. Yeah. I'm, I'm very interested, because she's still a minor at this point. Right, not not someone who works in mines, Marina. Just saying, so yeah. Um, but like, who is it? Would be the n- next of kin, but n- an adult should be her right? father. I would well, think. I don't know, like, because it, it's not. If anything happened to Karen, that would be true, also. But he does he still have any obligation to Joyce? I don't know. Oh, I thought you meant for who would take Karen. I was thinking well, it would that be her too. father. Yeah, okay. so I was thinking that too. But like, who would do the funeral arrangements? Yeah. Like these, the coworkers are. You're right, saints for yeah. helping with all of this. But yep. can't you get emancipated at 16? I don't know. I've never tried. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I think that you can get emancipated yeah. at 16. Interesting. I'm just very interested at that. Like, it seems like she shouldn't get to make all those yeah. or have to get to or have to make all those decisions. Yeah. So it, it's a all. lot of pressure to put yeah. on a 16 year old yeah. kid. The family was livid at the idea of being yeah. excluded, particularly her sister, Jeff Sands, right? One of the men who went with Karen to pick out the casket received a very angry phone call from her and he got an earful. He found her strong opinion on Joyce, though, a little bit odd, given how much emphasis Karen had put on her mother being estranged from her family. And her sister did confirm that there was some sort of weird family feud going on, but blood was blood, and they wanted to be there, especially for poor Karen. After they selected the casket and finalized the arrangements, they had the matter of selecting an outfit for Joyce to be buried in. Michael remembers that Karen selected the sleaziest pair of green pants for her mother, and he tried to get her to consider a dress. I think he pointed to a specific one. Karen scoffed and said that she wanted that particular dress for herself, so it was out of the question. What? Right? The men finally did convince her to pick out a dress, at least. Uh, the next one she picked out, though, was described as garish by The Undertaker. <laughs> Gee, and that's from, coming from an undertaker? Coming from an undertaker. So he made her go pick out a more appropriate dress. Wow. Shannon and her mother took Karen shopping for her own dress to wear to the services. And in the car, again, Karen broke down crying. It was the first time that Shannon or her mother had seen Karen exhibit any emotion. Mm. She was crying about the dress, not her mother. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, if I had to guess. Now, I know that we always say that everybody processes grief Mm -hmm. in their own way, but Karen's acting very strange. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody can contest that. She didn't seem as upset as you would think a 16-year-old who just lost her mother and effectively her only caregiver would be. Karen was also not about to change her plans. She was supposed to go see Alex's concert in Philadelphia. And you know what? She did. She just promised she'd be back in time for her mother's funeral on August 12th. She wanted to take her mind off of it. Yeah. And you know what? One of the detectives actually encouraged her to go. I think it was the detective. Um, or maybe it was one of the former business partners. But someone was like, you know, you've had a rough a rough week here. Maybe just go enjoy yourself. Yeah, live your life. If, if she had not done all the other questionable <laughs> yes. things, then I would agree with that. Yeah, had she not plotted to yeah. murder her it'd be it'd be fine yeah but. karen kept her word 
She was back for the funeral on August 12th, a week after Joyce was murdered. Joyce's body was in a private room at the funeral home in a closed casket. Karen demanded that the casket be opened. The funeral director was reluctant, but eventually he complied with Karen's demands. Karen towered over her mother's body and examined it from all angles. Why? It was the first time she had seen her mother since she dropped her off in row eight and on the fourth. Karen was physically leaning on the archbishop for support, and to some it looked like she was actually in shock, but to others it looked like she was trying to confirm it was really Joyce in the casket and Joyce was dead. That woman fucked her up. Like, I, I understand that Karen did many very, very bad things, but she is so psychologically troubled. She is. Wow. A lot of people at the funeral noticed that Karen's behavior was very mm-hmm. odd. Like, she wasn't crying at any point in time. And again, right, people process grief differently, but they her demeanor was weird. She was smiling. She was laughing and engaged in conversations with others. It only got weirder. At the grave site, the archbishop conducted the services, and as soon as he was done, Karen had another demand that needed to be met. Karen wanted the funeral director to begin to fill the grave in immediately, which is not how this usually works. Usually they do that after people have long left the cemetery. Doesn't want her to escape? I think so. Karen insisted, so the funeral director tossed a shovel of dirt on top of the coffin just to appease her. As Karen went to get into the limo, she turned to the crowd and said something really odd. She said, will everyone clap as I make my grand exit? What? What? No idea what's going through this girl's head. The Du Bois family invited those who had attended the funeral services to come back to their house. Mm. Once there, Karen called Dennis and asked him to come over. He did, of course. He'd do anything she wants him to. And the two went into the bathroom to have a private conversation. So Dennis was not present for any of the funeral services. Mm. Alex was actually the one that rode with Karen in the, like, the front car, and Alex was the one that was at the grave with her. Which is, I wonder if other people commented on that or noticed yeah. that. How long the conversation between the two was would become critical years later, but there are varying accounts. Some people say they were only in there for five minutes. Some say they were in there for 15, and there were obviously a ton of people um, at the Du Bois' house after this, so multiple people backed each. Some people said, yeah, it was only five, and other people were like, Mm -hmm. no, no, it was definitely 15. So we don't know exactly how long they were in there. Time is relative. Yes. And relevant. Okay. Deep. Dennis said that Karen was asking him questions about the murder. The same questions she had asked him before, right on the phone at the police station. So she already knew the answers. Dennis said they were together in the bathroom for maybe five minutes. Karen said that since she had finally seen her mother's body, she needed Dennis to explain to her exactly how the murder went down. I think she may have actually been caught off guard by how many bruises were on Joyce. Hmm. Oh, I forgot about that. Karen claims that it took Dennis 15 minutes to tell the tale, which... I still feel like is a pretty quick amount of time to absorb all of the details that Karen is telling people she knows. Jeff Sands, who was at the Du Bois' house, noticed that Karen seemed to be acting a bit funny after emerging from the bathroom. She told him she needed some fresh air and asked him if he'd go for a walk with her. He did, and Karen told him that she knew something and she needed help. Now, Jeff is an attorney, but he is not a criminal attorney, so he asked her if she needed a criminal attorney, and she said... Not her, but Dennis just confessed to me in the bathroom, so he does. What What a bitch. She wanted to know what she should do. And Jeff is like, well, if you don't tell the police what you know, you are committing a crime, so you have to tell them. Oh, my God. Karen didn't protest, and Jeff offered to take her to the police station. 
On the way out of the two boys' home, Shannon said something to Karen that really stuck with Jeff. She she gave her a quick speech about loyalty and friendship on the way out. Oh. So I'm pretty sure that Shannon's like, don't you go narc on him. Yeah. Like, what, what is this? Jeff and Michael Zaccaro accompanied Karen to the police station. Karen told the men that Dennis said he killed Joyce because she was preventing the pair from spending the rest of their lives together. The way she told them the story, today was the first time she had found out about this. Did she think that she was at risk, or is she just that manipulative that she wanted to fuck up his life now that she made him do the thing that she asked him to do? Oh, versus like just letting it be an unsolved right. murder? Yeah. Oh, I don't. I think it's manipulative. I think so too, because she ultimately didn't want to be with Dennis. She wanted to mm-hmm. be with Alex. So actually, it would have been a good way to get Dennis mm-hmm. out of the picture too. And her mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Two birds, one stone. Mm-hmm. Before they walked into the police station, Sands again asked her if she needed a criminal attorney. He wanted to know if there was any possibility that her statement would incriminate her. Karen said, nope, there's no problem. Dennis confessed to me, and I just can't live with this information. Except what do we always say? I don't know what our exact phrase is, so I guess it's not what you we always say. You shut your mouth when the police are talking yeah. to you. <laughs> you shut the fuck up. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that one. Yes. Before allowing Karen to speak with the detectives, uh, Jeff Sands actually went in and he asked the men if they would use anything Karen said against her. And they basically both just agreed that as long as Karen told them the truth, they wouldn't use anything she said against her. So she was fine. That's That's not how it works. That's like the opposite of the Miranda Mm -hmm. uh, reading. Reading? uh, Miranda writes? Those. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's not how it works. Yeah. They're like, as long as you're truthful, we won't hold anything against Mm -hmm. you. Right. I think maybe the reason he said it that way was that nobody thinks Karen is guilty of committing a crime right now. So I think they're just kind of worried about her somehow incriminating herself by saying what she had heard in the conversation with Dennis. Karen spent the next three hours with the detectives. She told them what Dennis had shared with her in the bathroom earlier that day. She shared that he had killed her mother at 1.56 in the morning. She mentioned the yellow paper towel that was stuffed inside of Joyce's mouth and a couple other details that hadn't yet been released to the public. Only the murderer and somebody he would have told would know these details. Did she really need to prove that he killed? Like, I feel like she got all these details or shared all of these details to prove that he confessed to her. But did she really need to? Couldn't she just have said he confessed to me and they can figure out the rest? I I don't know. It feels like she was going overboard there. And how is it in this situation? I feel terrible for the murderer. Right. You said that. Yeah. Yeah. Dennis is the most sympathetic person in this entire Mm. case. I feel so bad for him. He did everything that she asked him because he loves her so much. And she turned around and sold him down the river. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Karen's statement was 15 pages in total. I don't know if that's long, but it felt long to me. Mm. (laughs) Um, It was enough probable cause to arrest Dennis for the murder. Mm -hmm. When she was done, Detective Kavanaugh got up and kissed Karen and thanked her for her bravery. That's weird. It is weird. He's not the same one who said the sexual aura, is he? I don't know who made the sexual aura comment. It could have been him, but I'm not sure. Oh, no. I don't like it. He's like, I gave her a nice mouth kiss to thank her for her testimony. (laughs) (laughs) He, guys, he really felt for this girl. He he was trying to help her. He talked to her about victim support groups. He definitely didn't suspect her, and he didn't want to at this point in time. In hindsight, it was odd that Karen was able to recite the details of her mother's murder in such a cold, stoic manner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And oh, for, that too. Yeah. yeah. And for only having heard Dennis confess one time for five to 15 minutes... They, too, thought she remembered a lot of details. Mm-hmm. Some people have really good memories, though. That is true. 
But this is why the duration of the discussion that happened in the bathroom was important because they were basically debating like what is enough time to divulge this amount of information and retain it and Mm. then be able to repeat it. They talk for five minutes and then she confessed to the police for three hours about what he said. Exactly. Pages. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. The next day at 2.30 in the afternoon, Dennis was just wrapping up his shift at the country club when he saw the state police troopers arrive. He knew what this was about, and he just patiently waited at his car rather than attempting to flee. He was arrested for the murder of Joyce Aparo as well as conspiracy to murder. Dennis was facing a bleak prospect, up to 80 years in prison. His bond was set at 150000 which his father was able to scrape together to get him out on bail. The police had their guy, but they still had so many questions. Largely, how did Dennis get Joyce and her car to northern Massachusetts and then get home? Mm-hmm. Who were they charging with as the conspirator? Dennis, because he, he conspired and complete, co- committed the murder. You need another person to conspire with. Mm, I don't know law. So I don't know if they knew who the co-conspirators were at this point in time, but we are going to find out that, yes, he does eventually Mm. have co-conspirators here. Okay. That's not shocking, actually. (laughs) I can name a few. (laughs) Not shocking at all. So a search warrant was issued for Dennis's home and car. Had the warrant been served a few days prior, they would have found some pretty damning evidence. But on the Friday prior to his arrest, Dennis had made a trip to the town's dump and threw a lot of it into the compactor. So everything that was inside of his closet, Joyce's purse, just up into the dump. Oh, that neon orange one? Mm, Yes. too bad. Mm. There was, however, enough left in Dennis's room to make the police reconsider Karen's involvement in things. Mm. You you guys are going to think I'm making this up, but I'm not. So three walls of his bedroom were covered. We are talking floor to ceiling covered with photos of Karen and memorabilia from their time together. No. It was like the detectives had walked into a shrine that was dedicated to Karen Aparo. And indeed, Dennis called it his Karen wall. Oh, my, my skin is crawling thinking about that. There that was, that's like serial killer stuff. There was more. Not as bad, though. But there, in the drawers of Dennis's desk, police discovered stacks of letters, a hundred or more. There were letters from at least six different girls in there, but the majority were from Karen. And oddly enough, some from Dennis to Karen. I, I don't know how or why, but I read that they sometimes would keep copies of their letters for themselves. <laughs> Do you think that people who have um, these tendencies find each other like it's they not gravitate. just yes th- that's it's the aura it is it's that aura yeah. she's got there's someone for everyone guys dennis oh i can't with the Karen. i can't with the wall i'm just i'm just thinking of when i was a teenager yeah. I, think I, I was obsessed with mm-hmm. daniel radcliffe my sister was obsessed with leo dicaprio and you just have their pictures like floor to ceiling and it didn't seem creepy at the time and they're celebrities but i like just knowing all the background story of this it's really disturbing me and i think it's just it keeps driving home that we're talking about kids i know that dennis was 19 but like we're talking about kids here i've said it before doing kids things their brain is not developed until they're around 24 or 25 exactly and it just like kind of you have that dichotomy of that right but then also cold-blooded murder The content of those letters was enough for Karen to go from the oddly grieving daughter to an active and willing participant. Other letters suggested she may have actually been the driving force behind it all, and this was perhaps something that was in the works for a very long time. That's what she fucking gets for Mm -hmm. for telling on him. She sent them Mm -hmm. there. She did. She brought this upon herself. Yes. Yes. 
When Dennis was confronted with this information, he refused to give up Karen. He was adamant that he had acted alone and she had absolutely no part in any of this. Nothing anyone could do was going to change his mind. She doesn't deserve him. Yeah. There was another letter from somebody else that the detectives found particularly interesting. One from Chris Wheatley. And Uh it read, so dude, how's your woman? Is her mother still alive? (laughs) Where's my 1K? Mm, Oh, damn. I think this was from before this happened, because in the summer of 1986, Karen had also wanted Dennis to kill Joyce. So I feel like it was like a little bit of a running joke for a while. And then it became a reality. And there was damning evidence. Wow. The police had interviewed Chris and Kira in the early days of the investigation, but the interviews led nowhere. Were they covering up for their friend? Detective Kavanaugh went over the reports from the night of the murder, and something stood out to him. At 1.30 that morning, about a block away from the apparel condo, a white 1984 Renault Encore had been observed by officers oh. who were out looking for the cat burglar. Several noted that the car had passed by the complex multiple times. The car had also been ticketed that night. Mm-hmm. So they looked up who it was huh. registered to, and they saw it was Chris's father. Bingo. Mm -hmm. The state's attorney issued a search and seizure warrant against Chris, his residence, and his car. The detectives asked him if he ever had any reason to be near or in Joyce's car, and he said, no, but I do have some information that might be valuable to you. But of course, he wanted to speak with his lawyer first. The detectives had no choice but to wait. Well, that's the first good decision he's made. I think so, too. Goodness. On Monday, August 17th, the police were notified that they had received a match for the fingerprints that had been lifted from Joyce's car. They had taken samples from both the exterior and the interior, and these results proved that Chris Wheatley was lying. The fingerprints were his. Armed with this information, the police arrested Chris and his girlfriend. I don't know exactly what they had on her, but we all know she was present, so let's roll with it. They were both charged with conspiracy to commit murder and accessory to murder. Just like Dennis, they too were facing up to 80 years in prison. That makes sense that they'd be charged with that. I'm I'm giving a puzzled face because why did Dennis... I don't think I processed that he... So did Chris drive uh, Joyce's car and then Dennis drove a different car with, his, with Joyce's body in it? No. So the reason that Chris's prints are all over the car is he helped Dennis clean the car out. Oh. Mm. Oh. They okay. cleaned it very well, apparently. That's okay. Because <laughs> I was like, I thought that makes no sense why. Okay. Yep. yep. That Thank was you. fine. That's dumb. So, three down, one to go. The state police, now more suspicious of Karen than ever, got a search warrant for the condo, but again, they found little more than just the letters to go on. Then, on August 27th, the break they were looking for finally came. Shannon Dubois went to speak with the detectives at the station. Her conscience had finally gotten the better of her. Her loyalty to her friend was no longer enough to keep her silent. Karen had been out of town, and Shannon, for the first time, was alone with her thoughts, and she just could not keep Karen's secrets anymore. Do you know if at this time Shannon knew that the other, um, like Dennis and Chris and Kara were all uh, being charged? I don't know if Shannon knew I that. wonder if she was, and it was a little bit like, well, I guess I might as well. They're coming for me next. Yep. Like, I might as well say it and see what I, I can, can get. I see that. I'm, I don't know, but yeah, maybe. Guys, don't ever confess anything serious to me because my anxiety will eat me alive <laughs> and my paranoia, and I will, I'll rat you out. Yep. I really will. Yep. I'm so yep. sorry. I love you guys. I will rat you out. Uh-huh. Okay. Noted. Uh-huh. Shannon said she couldn't say anything any sooner because she was in disbelief that any of this could possibly be true. Um, And just as a side note, at this point, the Dubois family told Karen she was no longer welcome to return to their home. (laughs) That's fair. Very fair. Yeah, because I guess Shannon would have had to talk to her parents, most likely. Yeah, Yeah. she did. She told her parents first, and her parents were like, no, we have to go to the police with this. Yeah. 
So, of course, Karen went and cried to the archbishop, who arranged for Karen to stay with some nuns and then later a Catholic family in town. That poor family, just trying to do their good deed. Since Shannon was not involved in any of the plotting and only withheld information, the prosecution granted her immunity in exchange for her testimony. Mm -hmm. Shannon told the detectives what she had known and come to learn over the course of the past three weeks. The letters plus Shannon's statement were enough. On August 28th, a warrant was issued for Karen's arrest, and she was taken into custody later by Detective Revoir. Good. Mm -hmm. News of her arrest had gotten out, and there was a crowd of reporters waiting outside the station. The first impression Karen left on the crowd was lasting, but not a good one. Rather than a grieving daughter, she came off as extremely arrogant in both how she carried herself and the facial expressions she made. That doesn't sound at all like the Karen you've been telling us about. (laughs) No, not at all. I'm actually a little surprised that she wasn't behaving differently to manipulate Right, true, true. Yeah. The police knew that their case against Karen was not as strong as the one against Dennis. They really needed Dennis's help to convict her. But Dennis was loyal and refused to give her up. Oh, Dennis. Desperate to find a way, they told Dennis how his arrest had come to be. It was Karen who had approached them freely. Karen gave them the I will do the deed note. Karen told them about his confession. Then the kiss of death. They gave him Karen's diary to read on September 3rd. Now Dennis was willing to talk. So that... I feel so bad for Dennis. I know. And that also solidifies for me that he did not read it. I don't think he did. Because I don't think he has it in him to act and manipulate. So he is not pretending at this point. So interesting enough, perceptions began to shift. Dennis was no longer viewed as a cold-blooded killer. He was a victim of Karen's. Mm -hmm. And Karen was no longer a victim herself, but an evil incarnate. A girl who wanted her mother dead and manipulated a love-obsessed young man to do so. One resident of the town was actually quoted as saying, if this had happened, if this was a couple hundred years ago and a hundred miles north of here, they would have burned her with the rest of the witches in Salem. Wow. Yeah. So another person thinking that the women of the Aparo family are witches. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about what happened to everybody after they were arrested. So we'll do Chris and Kira first. Chris and Kira both ended up cutting a deal. On their end, they would tell the police everything they knew and everything they had done. They would also agree to serve as witnesses for the state if necessary. In exchange, neither of them could be charged with accessory to murder. They could only be charged with the lesser offenses of hindering the prosecution and perjury if they lied. The state agreed. But after further discussion with Chris and Kira, they had learned very little, if any, new information at all. They were also pretty sure that the two of them were lying. But there was one small problem. I guess the deal was drafted in such a hurry that the state forgot to include the part where the offer would become null and void if they lied. Oops. Oh my God. And get this, the state was actually pressured to keep up their end of the deal, and they actually did. So on the hindering charges, Kira's case went to juvenile courts and the records were sealed. Kira's 16, or was 16 at the time. We know that she could have been sentenced to three years in prison. She was not. She was let free on probation. I think for her, it makes the most sense because mm. she didn't do anything. It was dumb of her to want to tag along. Yeah. But in a weird way, I could see it if she's mm-hmm. like, if you're, if her boyfriend's going to do yeah. something dumb, like she wants to be there yeah. to make sure it's not like, I don't know. Again, these are kids making right. kid decisions. Exactly. But do you know what they what the difference in sentencing would have been if they hadn't gotten the deal? Like, would they have been in jail for, I, I just don't know what you get for that is so it they like were facing 80, 80 years with conspiracy oh, oh, conspiracy yeah, for oh murder God. wow but that's i mean 
When they say that people are facing a certain mm-hmm. amount of time, they take all of the charges, they look at the maximum penalty, True. and they add them all together, True. but that's not how people are sentenced. True. Most of the time, they're sentenced somewhere in the mid-range, and the mm-hmm. sentences run concurrently, so they're facing 100 years, and they get like 20 to serve. Yeah. It yeah. always sounds like very, very yeah, dramatic. Yeah. Right. That's a good point. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Chris could have been sentenced to five years, but instead his lawyer made a case for something called accelerated rehabilitation, Mm -hmm. meaning that in the years since the murder, Chris had become a good person, demonstrating acts of service to the community, and it would serve the state little benefit to have someone with Chris's mind behind bars. I don't think I shared this, but Chris was a pre-med student, so he was a little smarty. It's not just that. um, For certain crimes, accelerated rehab is like sort of like a get out of jail free card mm-hmm. like you can oh. use it once again only certain crimes mm-hmm. but if you fall under it you apply for the program same thing if like you have your first DUI you can mm-hmm. apply for DUI okay. programs drug programs but um, interesting yeah Chris was rehabbed instantly and put on probation for two years at the end of which his record would be erased wow and Chris did keep up his end of the deal he went back to being a good boy went back to his studies and in September of 1990 his record was wiped clean wow mm. The matter of what to do with Dennis and Karen was far more complex. So let's go back to Dennis first. Prior to having read her journal, Dennis never even considered that Karen would hurt him intentionally. Reading the diary changed all that for him. He was so blind. He was so Mm -hmm. blind. In the diary, he saw that Karen lied to him about the number of times she had sex with Alex. She Mm -hmm. lied to him about her feelings for Alex. She lied to Dennis about wanting to marry him. It wasn't Dennis, according to the diary. It was Alex she wanted to marry. She wrote about how she used and manipulated Dennis. Everything she had promised him was now fiction. If this is how Karen really felt, the murder was for nothing. Joyce was not preventing Karen from being with Dennis. Karen didn't want Dennis. I can't believe that Dennis isn't suicidal at this point. Because you mentioned that he had said earlier, you know, if I can't have her, like, it's me or Mm -hmm, her. mm -hmm. And I just, for how obsessed he was with her, I would think that his mental health would rapidly decline reading the the truth. Yeah. Yeah, I would too. I I don't know if he was suicidal at this point in time. I know physically all of this did a number on him. Did he lose another 50 pounds? Probably. Like a skeleton? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) As I mentioned a couple minutes back, this was enough to make him talk. And he spent the next several days talking. He talked about the year he met Karen in 1986. He talked about the weeks and days leading up to the murder. And the picture he painted put sweet Karen in the center of the whole thing. Now, armed with this new information about Karen's role in the murder, Dennis's attorney, Reese Norris, finally had something to help his client. The state agreed that if Dennis would testify against Karen, and he would be their primary witness, so he would testify, they would recommend a prison sentence of 42 years rather than 80. With good behavior, Dennis could be out in about 20. Wow. At the preliminary plea hearing, Dennis did not plead guilty. This was a strategic move. It would inevitably delay Dennis going to jail, but when he took the stand to testify against Karen, he would be a self-proclaimed killer, but not a convicted one. Can you elaborate on that? So um, to build credibility. So if they put him on the stand after he's pleaded guilty, he is a convicted murderer who is up there versus right now he's kind of just saying I killed her, but it's not like set in stone. So from the perception of the jury? Yes. Okay. Yes. For his credibility. Interesting. Never heard that. 
Norris had Dennis start seeing a therapist. I would argue somebody should have had Dennis yeah. seeing a therapist a long time ago. <laughs> yep. But he did it not because he wanted to use a diagnosis as part of his defense, but because he knew that Dennis was going to need some serious therapy and mm-hmm. help when he was released from prison in the future. The therapist on his first meeting said that Dennis appeared perfectly pleasant. He was friendly, articulate, calm, very matter-of-fact, but he felt like this was all just a surface persona, like something wasn't quite right. Dennis saw this therapist for at least once a week for the next two-plus years. After some time, the therapist was finally able to place his finger on what it was about Dennis that seemed off. He said, Dennis was not blocking his feelings. Inside, he is empty and dead. His inner world is a dead and empty one. What? The person we all see is a reflection he casts back at you, like he's just mirroring what society tells us is normal. He said that Dennis was using Karen to fill in these blanks. She was the center of his world. Mm. One time they did an inkblot test, and everything came back to Karen, and that's hard to do. This was not love we were dealing with. This was obsession. Oh, I have such chills. I don't, that is so much creepier. It's not yeah. at all. I thought maybe you would go like, maybe he had a multiple personalities or schizophrenia or something that he does was have preventing. Something. Okay. But still, that's not, I, that was right. not the, the direction. The description of being empty yeah. and filling and in your personality inside. with yeah. somebody else. That's, that's so scary. It's spooky. So creepy. Creepy. That. spooky. His therapist was fascinated by him. He consulted with his peers on his assessment, and they all agreed. While Dennis knew what he was doing when he murdered Joyce, he had little choice in the matter because Karen asked him to do it. He would do anything Karen said. He was compelled to act. They considered Dennis the vehicle, but not the driver. He was the gun, but Karen pulled the trigger. This is still someone you would not want out in society no, because no, if they so. are that mm. open to suggestion, yes. you're like, well, what if you meet another Karen? Yeah. yeah. No, they thank probably you. Would. So even though it wasn't their intention to diagnose Dennis, they did. <laughs> so yeah. Dennis suffered from borderline personality disorder. Uh, okay. He was what we call an as if personality, which means that the person is just doing what they feel is expected of them and they are unable to behave genuinely or spontaneously. So it's like the mirroring what they think the expectation of them should be. That's fascinating. Which actually explains a lot about when you first described him and he seemed like such a catch. Right. That would be because he was... That's what he thought. Creating that. Right. Wow. So trial dates came and trial dates were postponed. It was like nobody actually wanted to bring either Karen or or Dennis for final judgment. Originally, Karen's trial was supposed to happen before Dennis's, um, but because of all the delays, we'll see momentarily that Dennis's trial actually happens Mm. first. And that's probably because of the convicted versus self-proclaimed thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Dennis was a free man while he was awaiting his trial, and he made the most of it. He didn't attend college. Instead, he bought a motorcycle and went for joy rides around town, which, I mean, good for him. Mm. He worked on his model house. He did a ton of outdoor activities like camping and hiking. He played a few gigs with his band. He experimented with drugs, tried some weed, cocaine, LSD, all while desperately trying to forget the events of the year prior. I feel like he really should not be trying hallucinogenics. Seems very, very bad. I'll give you one positive. So he kept all of his appointments with his therapist. Wow. He also took down his Karen wall, and he (sighs) put it in a box and stored it in his attic. I mean, he probably should have just gotten rid of it in in general, but at least he took it down. Baby steps. Yeah, at Mm -hmm. least he took it down. Karen tried to continue with life while she waited, but it wasn't so easy for her. She tried to return to school, but the cruelty she faced was unbearable. She was transferred to Hartford, but the kids there knew about her as well. 
She rarely saw the people who were her mother's friends, so gone were Michael Zaccaro, mm. gone was Jeffrey Sands. She stayed with her former babysitter for a time, but the woman who considered herself to be very spiritual insisted that Karen brought bad vibes into her home. Not mm-hmm. wrong. Not, Not wrong, wrong at all. No. Karen ended up getting her own apartment in Hartford. She gave up the violin and got a job at a local bank. While the public continued to really feel for Dennis, anybody who was left supporting Karen had totally turned on her at this point. She was a girl with no heart, a vicious, unfeeling, sexually promiscuous teenager who for some reason had manipulated a nice, popular, all-American boy into murdering her mother, and then she had turned on him. Can you guys imagine how strange it must feel to literally be hated by the entire town Mm -mm. that you live in? I mean, when you earn it, though. Mm. Yeah. I can't, I can't imagine that, but I also can't imagine doing all the other things that she did, so. (laughs) Good point. You know. So let's talk a bit about Dennis's trial here and kind of what the strategy was. So his attorney didn't want to risk a jury trial for Dennis because even though he was viewed in such a favorable light, it was going to be really hard for that to continue once a jury saw what he did to Joyce. Yep, yep. Also, in my opinion, juries convict on far less than beyond a reasonable doubt Mm -hmm. every day. I think... I think that I would take my chances with a judge if I yeah. was in that situation. Yeah. But it just depends on the circumstances of the offense. Yeah. So Norris, his attorney, had met with prosecutor Thomas, and they agreed that if Dennis would change his plea to guilty, the state would not hold him to the original terms of the deal that was laid out. And at this point, it was years prior. A hearing on the sentence would be held in an open court. Norris could present whatever evidence he wanted and whatever defense he would have presented at trial. He could ask the judge to impose a lesser sentence, but no less than 30 years. The state would still ask for 42, but it would be at the judge's discretion. Judge Raymond Norco, who is noted as looking remarkably like Terry Bradshaw, the former Steelers (laughs) quarterback, presided over the hearing, and he considered what to do. Norris asked the court to consider a sentence of 32 years for Dennis, even if he served two-thirds of the time, which is not uncommon in Connecticut, at least not back then. He would still lose his entire youth. He would get out of jail when his best years were behind him. Mm. Norris was adamant that his client not be sent to Summers to serve his time. It was overcrowded and full of hardened career criminals. Dennis wasn't like these men. He Mm. should go somewhere where he'd be safe. The judge agreed. Mm. The judge said he was deeply deeply disturbed by how freely these teenagers all spoke about murder it was the equivalent of talking about taking a candy bar off a shelf for them it was so casual Mm -hmm. he didn't understand why none of his friends tried to reach out and stop him he questioned why there wasn't a parent educator church member anyone with a pulse in the community that could have that could have helped dennis in this situation and told him no he wouldn't have listened i don't think he would have listened he would not he was so obsessed with her it wasn't logic right that he was using and i think that would have been the problem no but it and it is this weird this weird set of circumstances that karen didn't have good supervision in the right way yep and then dennis was old enough to not have good supervision and then i i mean i don't know how chris and kira kira yep how chris and kira got into the situation aside from being friends with them it it all just seems like if you had one responsible kid and parents that i guess they wouldn't be friends with them but it i don't know one of my old bosses said something to me that has stuck with me all these years and it applies in so many situations lay it on us you cannot use logic to talk someone out of a position that they did not use logic to talk themselves into. Oh, that's good. That is brilliant. And it is brilliant and it applies across the board and it applies to Dennis. 
and it applies to people when you're talking to them. Yep. You need to just step back and realize. It applies to your children. Yes. yes. Oh, <laughs> Sometimes I fight with my toddler and I'm like, this is my fault. This yeah. is my fault. <laughs> yeah. I, I need to be the one to walk away because I'm not going to win this fight no, with my no. three-year-old. Like, I'm going to come out as the loser. <laughs> yep. The judge asked Dennis if he had anything he wanted to say to the court before he heard the sentencing. Dennis rose and quietly said, if I could turn back time, I would. I'm not a cold-blooded person, and this was not cold-blooded. It was the opposite. It was passion. I felt very much like it was a choice between committing suicide or committing murder. I can't tell you how much I regret it. And actually, the reason why the book I read is called Beyond Obsession is that is one of the things Dennis said during his testimony, was that like his infatuation with Karen was beyond obsession. Huh. I still feel really bad for him. Mm -hmm. I still do too. Like he has his own set of problems that he has to work through, but like, man, crossing paths with Karen, she was one of those people that when you cross paths with her, she was going to destroy your life. Yes. I mean, Joyce sucked, but yeah. Did she suck enough to die? Probably not. Probably not. Uh, Mm. But I still, I don't know. She beat the shit out of her infant child. Mm. So yeah, that's pretty. I mean, she really sucked, but so did Kat. I just have so yeah, many feelings. I, know. I, I, I don't feelings. know. I don't know how to feel. I but I strangely feel sad for Dennis. Then the judge read his sentence for the murder of Joyce Aparo, thirty-four years for conspiracy to commit murder, twenty years. Sentences to run concurrently. He concluded by saying, "Dennis, do what you can. Use your mind to survive up there. There is hope." Hmm. Up there, like he was sending him to Summers. Yeah, he did initially oh. send him to Summers. And that was it for Dennis. He was removed from the courtroom by two deputies and put into a van to await transfer to Summers. Mm-hmm. Once Wait. again, three down, one to go. Do we know where Dennis's parents are in all this? I assume they were supporting him at the trial and all that. but They were around, yeah. Like his father was the one that posted the money for bail. And I'm pretty sure like his father had a conversation oh, with right. him about yeah. like, you know, did you do this? Do we yeah. need to lawyer up? Yeah. So they were present. I would... Think probably because of Dennis's age, because he was a mm-hmm. little bit older. Yeah, he, they an adult. Yeah, an adult. I think they just weren't as engaged yeah. in like, his day to day life. Now, in in your um, dissertation, did you go into all of Dennis's history and background and like how he was raised? And I'm just I'm fascinated. Like, did he have any aside from what you started with when you introduced him that he's this all American mm-hmm. great guy? I'm just curious if he, he ever exhibited signs. There was nothing in the book about Dennis's childhood, mm. which for the 400 or some odd pages <laughs> that I read, I was kind of surprised there wasn't much in there. But yeah. I don't, maybe it was just unremarkable. That's what like I was yeah, it might have just yeah. been yep. normal. Yep. If it was noteworthy, right. it would be noted. Yeah. Yes. Yes. The more you know. This has been your <laughs> quote of the day from Grimm. <laughs> I love your announcer voice. <laughs> Me too. All right, so let's talk about Karen now. Karen's attorney was Hubert Santos. <gasps> Hubie Santos. He was legend. Wait for it. Dairy. <laughs> yes. And he was also Richard DeBate's attorney before he passed away. Oh. Oh. He is like, he is the criminal attorney wow. in Connecticut. That was the sentiment that I found as well. He mm-hmm. was considered to be one of the best and most expensive criminal lawyers in the state. Mm-hmm. Santos was good. He was known for passionately defending his clients and sometimes overstepping his bounds in the courtroom, but always because he just cared so much. He was known as the man who was expensive, but for what he could do for you, his fee was too low. Mm-hmm. The evidence against Karen was mounting. The public was against her. If she went to trial, the state felt like there was enough evidence to convict her on the accessory to murder charge and the two-pronged conspiracy to murder charge for 86 and 87. Mm -hmm. 
The state hinted that they were open to a deal if Santos was open to hearing it. If Karen pleaded guilty, she would be sentenced to 14 years. With good behavior, she'd be out in seven, still in her early 20s with her whole life ahead of her. It was a great offer, Santos and his partner thought. They urged Karen to take it, but Karen adamantly refused. She was innocent. Why should she take this deal? She believed she should stand trial, and she thought she was going to be acquitted. Santos tried every trick in the book to prevent Karen's case from going to trial, and every single one failed. Then he decided that Karen, too, should see a therapist. But unlike Norris, who is Dennis's attorney, he had Karen see someone who knew their way around the court system. He went to two forensic specialists, um, and they interviewed Karen, and they put her through the gamut of psychological tests. I'm going to read a quote to you guys about what these professionals said about Karen when they assessed her, and I really want to hear your thoughts once I'm done. The men determined that while Karen was cold, unemotional, standoffish, anxious, hypervigilant, mildly paranoid, overly controlled in feelings, very difficult to relate to personally, and although she was extremely angry to the point of homicidal wishes towards her mother, and she suffered through a myriad of borderline personality issues, she was in fact telling the truth that she did not assist Dennis in murdering her mother. She wasn't guilty. What? That was a lot of butts in there, basically, is what I heard. That's like, Karen is great, but she's cold and unemotional, and I'm going to talk for the next 15 minutes about how she has problems. There's a lot of butts in that assessment. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist. I don't share their sentiment. I don't either. I don't either. <laughs> I was waiting to see if you had something to say, too, about it. Uh, I was gathering my thoughts because I think I was, I was trying to think of what the angle was, and I, I think that I was paying attention to your words of did not assist Dennis in the murder. Yep. And I suspect that they are making a distinction on that. So yeah, those were my, that, that was why yes. I was silent and I forgot that I was on a podcast that <laughs> <laughs> I should talk out loud. <laughs> I think what they were trying to do was try to build up an insanity defense so they could keep it in their back pocket. It, they did not want to use it because as Marina has shared with us before, it is widely unsuccessful when you try to do the insanity plea. I think, what was it? 1% of um, cases. Thank you. I that did that. Matter. Matter. Oh, um, 26 out of 10,000. Damn. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't work very often. Mm-hmm. And also, Sometimes you spend more time in an asylum than you would in jail. Maybe not in this situation because she's facing like 80 years. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it's not that is not a get out of jail free card. No, I actually going back to Dennis, I would have rather seen that for him. Right. That he just went to a psychiatric facility because I think that is where he needed to be. I I don't. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, back to Karen. But finally, in late April of 1990, Karen went to trial. It was just five months after Dennis's trial. So, like I said, hers ended up second. The first matter of business was finding 12 jury members that could manage to have no bias impacting their judgment. It would be difficult given the attention local media outlets had been putting on the trial. It took about a month to find the jurors. They were eight men, several in their 30s and a few a little bit older, and four women, all middle-aged. Oh, no, the sexual aura. Mm -hmm. I'm concerned about the the sexual sexual aura aura with the eight men. Most most of the jury members were white, and they were a good cross-section of the area's middle class. Santos was pleased. The prosecutor, Jim Thomas, so same person that prosecuted Dennis, Mm -hmm. seemed to care little about the jury. He had been on the state's attorney staff for almost 12 years, and he had a reputation for being extremely well-prepared, but unlike Santos, he does not have a flair for courtroom dramatics. 
He was very confident that he was not going to lose this case, that any jury, once they saw the overwhelming evidence they had, they'd convict Karen. How could they not? His plan wasn't to march in a parade of witnesses or specialists. He didn't want this to be overkill and run the risk of the jury turning on him. He wanted to lay out the evidence rapidly and tellingly with as little redundancy as possible. It was a strategy that surprised many. Prosecutors are not typically concerned with overkill. Mm. Usually the more witnesses telling the same story, the better. Most prosecutors will pile on the evidence and try to exhaust the jury to mm. the point where the jury feels like they know what they know what the witness is going to say before they say it. Yep. But not sense. Thomas. I don't like where this is going. No, I don't like Colby's face either while she's no. saying it. I don't like my face either. I can't <laughs> control what my face does. It just does. It just does. <laughs> The jury was finally ready to hear testimony on May 21st, 1990. The Karen who went to trial was not the same Karen who was arrested. In the three years that passed, her attorney took the time to groom her for this moment. She was now 19 and a slight, fragile-looking woman who sometimes looked like she could be as young as 12. She now wore very little makeup and had ditched the skin-tight clothing in favor of more modest, loose-fitting attire. Now she seemed vulnerable, even frightened. She no longer appeared arrogant or cold. She bit her lower lip. Her smile was a nervous one. She was now the picture of innocence. Oh, Hubie got her off, didn't he? Oh, Hubie Santos. On the fourth day of the trial, Dennis Coleman was brought in. The time he had spent in prison had not been kind to him. Good news, he did put on weight. Bad news, he was puffy and flabby and his eyes were lifeless, devoid of everything. Mm. It's puffy because they feed you a lot of carbs in prison to fatten you up and slow you down. I agree. Grim fact. I have a head start on that one. (laughs) (laughs) I just like carbs. They're just delicious. Uh I do that voluntarily. Yeah, exactly. So Dennis did eventually get transferred from Summers to a facility in Hartford, but not before he was attacked by the other inmates. He was assaulted and beaten. His arm was broken and he was threatened. Word had gotten out that he was going to testify for the state and that mentality just doesn't fly in Summers. You were either with the state or against them didn't matter why you were testifying he was a traitor and told if he testified he would be killed so they moved him snitches get stitches (laughs) they do william devon howell would be like yeah get it (laughs) he testified for five days he barely allowed himself to hold to hold karen's gaze at any point karen ever the little actress cried when dennis started describing her mother's murder and the court had to take a brief recess when they resumed, she put her head down on the, de- on the table and sobbed. They needed to take another recess. Later, when the jury asked for the testimony to be reread, she broke down again. Oddly, all at the exact same parts. Dennis was asked why he was testifying, and he said because he felt like it was the right thing to do. He needed to share his story. He said his feelings towards Karen now were more apathy than hate. He asked Dennis questions about the letters he and Karen exchanged. The court asked if there was a point to all of this, and Santos said, the witness is lying. In fact, earlier in the trial, he had tried to prove that since Dennis didn't believe in God, taking an oath of saying, so help me God, meant nothing to Dennis. Side note, wow. Dennis found God, I'm assuming, in prison, because mm-hmm. I feel like that happens a lot. A lot of people are looking for something to turn to. Oh, yeah. This was the exact kind of thing that Santos was known for doing. The judge was furious and told him that the jurors were not interested in hearing his opinion, and if he had one more outburst, the court was going to take action against him. He apologized profusely and crawled back to his table, but this was exactly what he wanted to happen. Santos next tried to focus on just how much control Karen held over Dennis, asking him stupid questions like, 
If Karen asked you to jump off the Brooklyn Bridge, would you do it? Yes. If she asked you to kill the president, would you do it? A hundred percent. Both of which he actually answered no to because their murders would be pointless. Oh. At the end of the five days, most who listened to Dennis thought him a very credible witness. Mm. He held up well despite the defense counsel trying to trip him up constantly. Dennis had been honest about things he didn't recall, like dates or the order in which some letters were received. So Santos really had done very little to damage Dennis's mm. credibility. I have a question. Yes. Marina loves this when I ask her an out of the blue legal question. This mm-hmm. is less legal and more just like I don't know anything about law um, or being a lawyer. In the on TV, you often see they'll say, you know, a lawyer will say something just to get it out there, even if the the other side objects and they're like, disregard that, but it's out there and it's said. Is that, does that really happen? Yes. <sighs> like Do you they, think that's what he did with that, where he said it, like made this big fuss and then was like, oh, oh I'll back off. But he, he made the point and, and did it. It's possible. But I mean, you can ask, you can ask a question and somebody answers it while the objection is pending mm-hmm. or they you know they answer it before it comes out and they'll say you know the jury is instructed to yeah. disregard that you can't unring the bell right right and that's infuriating on appeals when mm-hmm. you're appealing they're like well the jury got this information it's like well the judge instructed them to <sighs> to disregard it and you have to assume that the jury is listening to the instructions that the judge <sighs> gives you which completely disregards human nature right, right. and you know People's yeah. thought processes. Shannon Dubois also testified, and she told her story, the same one you guys heard me recount today on this podcast. Santos was gentle, but he still tried to rattle her. But Shannon was not having it. Our girl stood firm. She was not confused. She was not misremembering conversations for who said what. She was telling the truth. Beverly Warga also testified. If you don't remember her, she was the secretary that overheard all of Karen's conversation with Dennis at the Glastonbury Police Department. Mm. So while Dennis was a questionable convicted felon, Shannon and Beverly were not. Mm-hmm. The state rested on May 31st, 1990. They had not called Chris or Kira as witnesses. They actually found them both to be impeachable, so they just didn't even bother. Thomas thought for a convicted killer, Dennis's testimony had been great. Sure, it's hard to trust a felon, but Dennis said nothing self-serving. He was fully open about his involvement in the whole thing. Even if the jury didn't believe Dennis, who would doubt Beverly and Shannon's testimonies? What did they possibly have to gain by lying about Karen's actions? The public continued to be fascinated by the case. People lined up outside of the court each day, hoping to get a seat. They waited outside for others to leave to see firsthand the trial. So it was like at college when you'd stalk people for parking lots. Mm -hmm. That's what they were doing for these seats. Wow. The public opinion was that Karen was guilty and a conviction was inevitable. On Monday, June 4th, they had Karen take the stand and they worked on repairing her image and trying to build sympathy for her. They started with the letters. They wanted Karen to explain just how innocent they all were. It was just a big misunderstanding. The aborted plan she referred to in her letters... It wasn't some 1986 murder plot. It was to run away with Dennis. Mm. When she wrote that the plan wasn't to be carried out, she meant she realized how foolish they were being, thinking that they could make it on their own. When she said she'd do whatever was necessary, she just meant she'd finally stand up to her mother. Oh, come on. You know what I hate about this? When I'm listening to this, my automatic thing is, do I believe her or not? But that's actually not the question that juries need to think about. It is, does it introduce reasonable doubt? And it kills me because I don't agree. Like, yeah, is that what she did? No, but it makes me doubt. Exactly. Mm -hmm. The other problem is this. We've said this before. 
you're telling us all of this information yes. leading up to the trial yeah, and yeah. then we get to the trial and we're like fuck karen yeah but you don't know well you're telling us the the evidence that the jury got but we have different evidence mm-hmm. so you know you're like ah, how could this have happened it's yep. like you weren't in the right. courtroom you have additional information yep. that the jury never got well and they specifically went for juries that weren't or jury members that were not watching the news and not super familiar with the case. So that even more leads to what you're saying. Mm -hmm. There was one more thing that they had to clear the air on that Karen Mm -hmm. had done. So yeah, sure. Karen had crushed up some pills and put them in her mom's sandwich that one time, but she wasn't trying to kill her. She was just angry. Her mom was mad that she and Dennis were sleeping together and Karen just crushed up the two pills to take the edge off for Joyce. Did you tell us about that before? Did we know about that? I don't think so. I think it was one of the things I caught in my notes, but it it was just like in the middle of Dennis and Karen scheming for things like Joyce found the letter um, where in her journal where Karen was saying that her and Dennis had had sex for the Mm. first time, or maybe it was like at some point in like the 10 or 20 times that they had, (laughs) she, it was 80 overall in case you were wondering. Regardless, she had done this because Joyce really was freaking out at her for finding out that her like 16 year old daughter was sexually active. I'm Mm. sure she just had a hard time with it. What kind of pills did she crush up? She said they were Joyce's migraine medication, but I I don't know exactly what mm. they were. It didn't say like what prescription it was in the hmm. book that I read. So it wouldn't do two, anything. Two would not have done anything mm. to her. Uh, Karen actually crushed up the whole bottle and put it in there, though. Mm. That's mm-hmm. what okay. she's not telling us. And she made her mom a sandwich. I feel like it was like a peanut butter yeah. sandwich or something. And she put it in there and Joyce took a bite and spit it out and was like, this is disgusting. I'm not eating it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Have you ever tried to swallow a pill and it gets yes. stuck? In- well, you're terrible with pills, mm-hmm. but I go to swallow a pill and it gets uh-huh. stuck in my throat. I'm like, because oh, it tastes awful it's if you crush up a bottle of pills um, yep i would notice to this day i can't eat regular applesauce because my mom because i couldn't take pills mm-hmm. when i was a kid and my mom would crush up like i'm sure many parents did and it you can taste all of it <laughs> in applesauce so to this day i can't eat applesauce so that's, that's a fact. grim fact i grim didn't fact. know <laughs> listen listen learn they also asked karen why she wanted to run away She said life with her mother was very difficult. At times she loved her, and other times she was afraid. She said her mother was very mean, physically, emotionally, and psychologically. She said she would constantly tell her lies. Santos saw this as his ticket to try to surface the years of abuse. His plan was to bring in witnesses that could confirm the stories of the abuse. The problem was that he was trying to give Karen a reason for committing a crime that she wasn't admitting to committing. Oh. Does that work? Admitted to, it, admitting it to does. committing? It does. It's just that they sound yeah. They sound the same. silly. Yeah. Yes. But that's a great point because it's, it's, he can't win. Because yep. if he proves that there's abuse, then there's motive. Mm-hmm. And if he can't prove that there's abuse, then why was she trying to run away? Right. Mm. He wanted to present that the original conspiracy plot was not an earnest attempt to have her mother killed. It was an abused child acting out after years of abuse. They wanted to illustrate why Karen would act out against her mother. They wanted to outline the years of abuse Karen had faced. So now it was no longer Karen in the court of public opinion, but Joyce. Mm -hmm. The stories Karen told were all confirmed by the witnesses Santos had lined up. You could feel the swing in the juror's opinion of Karen. Now there was sympathy for her. Mm. She was the object of pity. People still thought she should be punished, but they were less certain to what yep. extent. Yep. On cross-examination, Thomas tried to hurt Karen's credibility, but she basically denied everything and said Dennis and Shannon were liars. She kind of said, like, Shannon used to be my best friend, and she turned on me, mm. so that's her motive to lie, but it's not a good motive. Mm-mm. 
The prosecution in their closing argument said Karen's entire testimony was basically that she wasn't involved. It was just a fantasy. But if she did want to kill her mother, this is why she's justified. <laughs> I feel like this was the OJ defense. I was just going to yeah. say, is she OJ Simpson? I didn't yeah. do it, but if I did... Mm-hmm. In the defense's closing arguments, they tried to paint Dennis as the monster. They focused on Karen's journal entries and how her mom was just so proud she was with Alex. Was that July diary the diary of a girl who wanted her mother dead? No way. They said that Karen was filled with guilt, not because she was involved in the murder, but because she was the sole reason Joyce and Dennis knew each other. That's what she was guilty of for bringing Dennis into Joyce's life. Karen never had a chance to be loved by her parents. She never had a chance at a normal childhood. They wanted to give her a chance now to live her life and get the help she needs to cope with the years of abuse she faced. The state had the final word and urged the jury to judge Karen based on her involvement in her mother's murder, not the sympathy they felt for the obvious years of abuse she faced. After 18 days of trial, the jury was to deliberate on the verdict. And deliberate they did, for days, even weeks. Finally, on Thursday, June 28th, after three weeks of deliberation, the jury had finally reached a verdict. As the foreman came back in, he smiled at Karen and winked at her. Oh, no. no. The jury found Karen not guilty on the count of accessory to murder. On the count of conspiracy to murder, they were deadlocked. The vote was seven for acquittal, five for conviction. Outside the courthouse, the foreman gave an interview stating that even before the state had finished their case, they knew Karen wasn't guilty. It's not how this works, guys. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think you shouldn't say that. He said Dennis was a self-centered, twisted individual. He said there was no way Dennis had no animosity towards Karen. And based on that, Dennis was a liar and he shouldn't be trusted. So like anything he says at all can't be trusted because this guy can't believe that he doesn't hate Karen. Wow. During this interview, Karen appeared and the foreman asked if she happened to catch his wink. She said yes and he hugged her and stroked her hair. Again, ick. What What the the fuck? fuck? Guys, I'm, I am pretty confident that Karen is some kind of a succubus based on how men respond to her. Uh, I, yeah. I, 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 uh, I did with, it. With, I made Marina speechless. Uh, like the police officers and like jury foremen. I mean, like be, civil servants. Being sexual like aura. The sexual aura oh. on this girl. What the fuck? She's Bleh. got that catnip. This is definitely an explicit episode with all the F-bombs yes, that yeah. Laura and I Sorry. have dropped. I, Sorry. I just can't. There's no other words in my brain. So much like you two, the public was furious. Mm. Local television and radio stations were fielding calls left and right about the gross miscarriage of justice they had just witnessed. The mm-hmm. majority of the calls, interestingly enough, came from women. Mm-hmm. Not the men who were under Karen's spell. Mm-hmm. Reporters rushed to ask Dennis for his opinion, and I think he nailed it. He said, Karen spent years learning how to manipulate people from her mother. Absolutely. She did it very subtly, but it worked on the jury. He maintained Karen was still guilty. The public outrage grew for the next three weeks, and pressure mounted to retry Karen for the conspiracy charge. And so the state said that they would. But guess what? They never did. Karen would never serve any time. She had orchestrated the murder of her mother and gotten away with it. Holy shit. May he rest in peace. But can you see, like, Hubie Santos yeah. is oh my God. legendary. Legend. Like, yes. that, that would be who you would hire. Right. Wow. And, yeah. You know, for for trial. That's wild. Yep. Wow. Wild. So I could see that man was talented. Mm-hmm. Dennis was released from jail in 2012. He did. He served 22 years. Wow. 
both Dennis and Karen tend to stay out of the public eye these days, but I did try to look up what Karen was doing. And I know she was married maybe a decade ago and she's living somewhere in the South doing social work. I think she's in Missouri. Just like her mother. Yes. Just oh like her mother. God. Like mother, like daughter. Seriously. In every possible way. Mm. What do you guys think was justice served here? So, so I was thinking while you were reading this, cause your point about like, we're hearing all this, um, you know, all in, well, two sittings, but all together with specific evidence. And I was thinking if you hadn't started with Karen's abuse, like having been abused and how crazy and abusive and manipula- manipulative that Joyce was, I would have been completely against Karen the entire time. Yep. That little bit. And I'm sitting here knowing all the details. I trust what you said. And I still have a little bit of me that is like, it, it almost, if you can argue that Dennis was, it was not his control. And you know, yep. I could argue that, that Karen wasn't either because what, what chance did she stand? I don't think, I she don't ever think it's acceptable. One. I don't, I mean, there's, as you said, there's plenty of people who have horrible childhoods that don't kill their parents, but still, I, I, this one threw me for a loop. I think the switch for me, I, you really took me on a roller coaster. Yeah. That was my because, intention. Yeah, we started off and I'm like, Joyce sucks. Yep. And then we transitioned into Karen sucks. <laughs> yep. And I felt bad for Dennis the whole time. Yeah. At no point did I feel animosity towards yeah. Dennis. Which Same. He's a murderer, so maybe I should have, but... I didn't. Um, well, especially when you learn that it it is a, a, he physically can't help it. Right. Not that he could. He probably could have helped not murdering. Right. But he really, as I said, probably should just be in a psychiatric facility. I think I would feel different about the outcome if it wasn't the result of Karen manipulating Dennis, where Dennis ended up serving all this time and Karen yeah. walked away yes. scot-free. Scot mm-hmm. If it was an act of desperation where, you know, Joyce was actively beating her and yep. Karen was in this horrible situation and, you know, he's he's saving her right. from her mother. And again, I get it. Joy sucked, but it doesn't sound like that's where they were at that point in their relationship. So because of that manipulation towards Dennis and he was mm-hmm. so susceptible to it, I do not feel that justice was served. But again, nope. may he rest in peace. Huey Santos is a freaking legend mm-hmm. for getting her off scot-free on that. Also, just can you imagine how crazy it was for Dennis to to exit into the real world in 2012, having gone into jail in what, 1991, 1990, 1990, just the sheer amount that changed in the world between 1990 and 2012. Just as a thought, I want to say that one of my clients once he was in jail for, I think 20 years and he was transitioning to a program where they were trying to explain the technology. Mm -hmm. Like they were trying to introduce it to them because it is, it's almost like Shawshank Redemption, where yes. that guy got out after all those mm-hmm. years, and he just couldn't handle it because he was so used to the structure of prison. And yep, well, and just 1990, no cell phones, right. no right. internet, no computers that normal people had. Oh, you know, man. what not a shock! And now 2012, yeah. you have yeah. iPhones. Yeah, I mean, you're not just at like, you know, no. a flip phone. <laughs> it's it, yeah, that would be that would be crazy. So that is the tale of Joyce and Karen Aparo and Dennis Coleman. Um, I just, I'm verklempt. (laughs) Oh, that's Marina's favorite word. Um, Aside from interesting. 
and what is the other one that I like? Um, nefarious. Nefa- oh yeah, yeah. Nefarious, yeah. ominous, verklempt, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and interesting. <laughs> One of these things. No, they're very different. Uh, May I also just say that Colby originally considered that this was going to be a one part, like one episode. Mm -hmm. um, And we are very much at two episodes. So, but shout out to you because you you basically wrote a book um, and (laughs) read it to us. But I'm so glad that you brought us the information you did. It was, as Marina said, a super roller coaster. It was captivating, is maybe Mm -hmm. the right word. so thank you. I was really sad with the trial because I knew where yeah. it was going. Yeah. Same, same. And it was it was a bummer to be on that roller coaster ride, but yeah. here we are. One cool thing is this case was actually also a listener suggestion. One of my coworkers no. sent me an article on my work laptop and it was like sex, murder, and obsession. <laughs> and I'm like, close it, close it. <laughs> now go find this on my phone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um I I didn't ask her. I didn't think to ask her if it was okay to shout her out, but she knows who she is. And I told her today about how freaking excited I was to tell this story. And I know she's super excited to hear it. Insane. You know, I was thinking like, you know, about this being a roller coaster. Um, Do you remember when Fabio got hit in the face with a bird when he was on a roller coaster? Yes. That's how I feel. Yes. Yes. You just take a pigeon to the face. (laughs) Yep. That's what I did today. We started off with just joy when you're like, and then we we just mounted the crest and just <laughs> feathers and blood <laughs> pigeon in your face <laughs> so. and for that i am sorry but i'm, I'm actually not no. you never are i no. never am you never i are. love to torture everybody. the only thing you're sorry about is this isn't unsolved in our that yes well yes because i always love me a good unsolved case i (laughs) don't i think it is i think i don't enjoy reading the trial recaps Mm. because i feel like at that point i've already heard a lot of this stuff and then it's like structured and legalese (laughs) and i don't know i wanted to be a lawyer when i was a child and the older i've gotten the more i'm like nope you made the right decision not going into that field Um, but two of us did yes two of us did no i meant me personally for sure that was not for me thought Mm -hmm. it would be fun because i enjoy confrontation and arguing but it won't be (laughs) worth it i could see that so gremlins after you've heard this case we would love for you to comment on our instagram posts and let us know what you're thinking who do you sympathize with yeah. in this case? And how do you feel about Joyce as our victim? Because like I said earlier, usually we're all sunshine and rainbows about the person <laughs> yeah. who's deceased. And Joyce was not that person. No. She did not light up a room. She no. did not. She darkened the room when she yeah. entered it. Yep. So if you are loving Grimm, please rate and subscribe to our podcast. For those of you who listen on Apple Podcasts, it would mean the world to us if you could leave us a written review. Follow us on Instagram at Grim Crime Podcast for case photos and to stay current on the latest episodes. Want to send us a case suggestion and I will do the damn thing. <laughs> send us an email at grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com. We hope you listen, learn, and stay alive until next time because the future is grim.